In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing the show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. We have a super duper exciting episode for you today. Unsurprisingly, we'll start off by talking about COVID um, and we'll talk some more about voter suppression and registration in the United States and the controversy over mail-in voting. But most importantly, most exciting and significantly, we have a very special guest today. Yep. I had a interview with current candidate for the West Virginia uh, seat at the United States Senate, Richard Ojeda. Uh, he is also a former presidential candidate, a former state senator from West Virginia, uh, a former major in the United States Armed Forces, and we sit, sat down and talked about how to fix Washington, how to uh, solve corruption, and uh, his own candidacy. So I'm really excited for you all to hear about that. Um, and it was really great to be able to sit down and talk to him. Yeah, it was an awesome interview. I was devastated that <laughs> I couldn't participate because literally half an hour before the interview, I got a flat tire in my car <laughs> and <laughs> wasn't able to make it back in order to participate. And I was so so sad yeah. um, but Nathan did an awesome job facilitating the interview it was it was amazing to hear from from Mr. Ojeda so yeah can't wait for you guys to hear it so let's get right into it let's talk about COVID-19 so awesome. Michael where are some of the numbers at at this point with COVID yeah so currently worldwide there are 5.5 million total cases which is about a 600,000 case increase from last week um, so we've had about a steady increase this weekend, last week, which, as a reminder, is you know a decline from from April, so that's good. Um, there are about three hundred and forty seven thousand deaths worldwide as well, um, which is twenty seven thousand more le more than um, the previous week, and so about the same uh, rate of spread. So overall, in the world, like we had a week of decline, and then that 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 slower spread has continued. In the U.S., however. Um, now we have 1.7 million cases, which is about 200,000 more than last week. So basically, we've returned to the April levels of spread. So as a reminder, um, last week, over the week before, there was only 100,000 cases, a case increase, which was, you know, about half the rate of spread. But now we're back up to that 200,000 case a week level. Um, and currently, we are at 99,000 deaths. So, so really pushing... Um, that 100,000 death milestone. Um, and that's about 7,000 more deaths than last week. Um, so a bit of a death rate decline, but um, not, not a significant one. And still we're about to breach that 100,000 deaths milestone, which is just devastating and horrible. But yeah. according to continued you know, insistence by the Trump administration, Pretty much anything under 200,000 deaths is doing a great job. So we're only halfway to acknowledging that things might not be going perfectly. <laughs> yeah, which is really irritating because there have been there's actually been several 
projections and studies that have shown that if we had acted earlier, we could have prevented many of these deaths. Uh, Michael, you want to talk more about that? Yeah, totally. So, so we've emphasized this, you know, in our criticism of the U S response fairly regularly, like not only has our response not been as aggressive as some other nations, but it was also slower. Um, and just recently, uh, Columbia university came out with, uh, a estimate of what it would have looked like if we had taken the exact same actions we took. So similarly, not as aggressive lockdown as some other nations, but a week earlier. So as a reminder of kind of the timeline, unlike March 9th, um, Trump was still claiming that this was only as bad as the flu. Um, and, you know, he has a tweet to prove that at the time. And then by March 15th, the U.S. had 2,000 cases uh, and was implementing different social distancing actions. So the federal government was warning against large groups. Uh, we were doing health screening at airports. States uh, were putting into place um, emergency declarations by government uh, governors and mayors. But if we had done all those actions on, like, March, March 8th or 9th rather than the 15th, an estimated 36,000 lives so far would have been saved. So mm. that's a 40% reduction in fatalities. Because remember that the math that we've discussed a few times on this podcast, illustrating exponential growth, the early days make all the difference in how you're addressing this kind of thing. So seven days would have meant 40% fewer deaths, which is just crazy. And I don't want to put all of this on one man's unnaturally orange shoulders. Um, because, you know, in, in Mar- at March 8th, the world was not, you know, the, case, the state of the world was not as obvious as it is today. You know, Bernie was still having rallies on March 8th. I, I went to an yeah. NBA game on March 8th. Um, I went to a Bernie rally. Uh, yes. I think it was in March. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, there's a big difference there in that presumably the government was getting much better information. And even if, even if it wasn't March 8th, even if it was March 9th or 10th or 11th, each day saves tons of lives. Seven days cost 36,000 lives. And it's really, it would be really surprising to me if all of the like partisan hackery and conspiracy theories that were being shared like in early March by, you know, the Republican establishment and Trump and Trump surrogates that, you know, if those theories had been substituted for good information, for commitment to the best information and the best policies, that we wouldn't have saved tens of thousands of lives. Yeah. See, this is why we talk about how important it is to have a leader that tells the truth. And it's not just because we get annoyed every time we hear Trump tell a lie. I mean, we do get annoyed, but that's it's not just like we have discomfort from the fact that there's a liar in the White House. It has practical, real-world implications. When he is actively hiding all of the warnings that he's been getting from intelligence agencies about how severe coronavirus could be, he is doing real-world harm. Mm -hmm. And I want to go back to this idea that uh, Michael reminded us of, of how early in the virus... Trump was dismissing it as just the flu. And sometimes he does still seem to be reiterating that sentiment. And I know that I've been seeing it in a lot of right-wing circles. Even today? Even today. Even today. So I know that 
the first episode that we did in which we covered COVID-19, before COVID-19 became COVID-19. Yeah. As a reminder, that was March 10th. Yeah. (laughs) The name of that episode was the coronavirus is not a flu or is not the flu. So even back then, we knew that. But but let's... (laughs) The Rinky Dink podcast knew that. (laughs) I can't believe that people are still not convinced. So let's go through one important fact. So Trump has cited the statistic that 25,000 to 69,000 people die every year from the flu. So let's break apart that number for just a second. First off, let's assume that the actual number is at the high end of that, is at the 69,000. Let's assume that. Approximately 100,000 people have died in the United States of the coronavirus. In In, just a few months. In just a few months. So that, again, that is an annual number. We have not had COVID-19 for a year yet. And even then we still have more than that. But but then you might be asking yourself, why is that such a wide range? 25,000 to 69,000, that's a really wide range. Where do they get that number? Well, that number is not actually a represented flu count. Like those aren't recorded cases. Those are estimates from the Center for Disease Control. And the way they get that is by multiplying the number of flu death counts reported by various coefficients produced through complicated algorithms. These coefficients are based on assumptions of how many cases, hospitalizations, and deaths they believe went unreported. So those aren't reported cases Those are estimates based on algorithms. That is not how we are currently collecting data on COVID-19. If we collected cases from flu deaths, if we are looking at the number of flu deaths in the same way that we collect that information about COVID-19, the number would be a range from 3,448 to 15,620. So the point to take away from that is the fact that There are a lot of COVID-19 deaths that are unreported. And if we reported COVID-19 deaths the way we estimate the flu deaths, the number of flu deaths that Trump cited, there would be way more. Mm -hmm. So stop calling it the flu. It is not the flu. Look at the numbers. Look at the information. I get it. A lot of you... Love your dear leader, Trump. But you can't put people in danger just to protect his ego and just to protect your own cognitive dissonance from admitting that your dear leader made a mistake. The numbers are showing that not only if we acted earlier could we have prevented more deaths, but the number of deaths that are even recorded are vastly more than the estimated deaths from the flu. So please, just take it seriously. Yeah, because also like, you know, that, that's the seven days made a 40% difference in the ultimate outcome. If we were to open up too early because we're thinking, you know, we're still pushing the false narrative that this is the flu and then have a second wave that continues to expand, we could see similar impacts, like second order impacts later on as well. So like... You know, doing things 
too early or, or taking precautions too late can make a big difference. So now let's switch gears just a little bit and talk about something that Trump did, which shocked the world in a press meeting that he had recently. He claims that he has been taking hydroxychloroquine. Now, we actually haven't talked about hydroxychloroquine on this podcast yet, which I feel like I feel like it's important for us to take a minute and talk a little bit about this drug. Now, before we start this, I think it is important to recognize that we don't view hydroxychloroquine from a partisan angle. All right. This is not about we're Democrats. Therefore, we hate hydroxychloroquine because Trump seems to like it. That's. That is not what this is about. Mm -hmm. We would love to be able to leverage an existing drug for treatment of this. I mean, like the benefits are huge. Anthony Fauci specifically called out that, quote, we urgently need a safe and effective treatment for COVID-19. Repurposing existing drugs is an attractive option because these medications have undergone extensive testing, allowing them to move quickly into clinical trials and accelerating their potential approval for COVID-19 treatment. Yeah. And early on, hydroxychloroquine was looked at as a potential treatment for COVID-19. And this was before Trump had made it this weirdly partisan issue. It was looked at as one as a potential drug to start testing. And it has been tested. And I just want to go over some of the studies that have been carried out over hydroxychloroquine. Because the problem with Trump talking about the drug, it has nothing to do with the drug itself. The problem is that he was talking about this drug before there was any conclusive evidence about the drug. Now, even if we did end up having multiple studies come out, to say that it was, in fact, an effective treatment for coronavirus, he would have still been in the wrong to start promoting it because we didn't know that yet. We wouldn't have known that yet. Yeah, exactly. It is is irresponsible. Even if you end up being right in the end, it is irresponsible to promote a drug, especially when you're the president of the United States, not a medical expert, before we have conclusive evidence about it. Yeah, because, like, let's... Let's be clear about what the potential downsides are. So, yeah, drugs are, are approved by the FDA to treat certain conditions, but taking those drugs absent of those conditions or taking the drugs in presence of a different condition can have significant negative side effects. So it's not like, oh, like taking hydroxychloroquine would just, you know, have no impact on you. Maybe it'll help. Maybe it won't. And the only negative impact would be that it would put stress on the hydroxychloroquine uh, supply chain. That's actually not the case. We actually don't know if it would have a negative effect or not. And multiple studies are starting to come out indicating that it might. Yeah. In fact, so let's go over the studies that Trump likes to cite. So you often hear him talking about the French study. The French study was carried out by a doctor, uh, Didier Rold. I, I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. And what it was studying was the combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. So already it's, it's just, it's not just studying hydroxychloroquine, it's studying it in combination with another drug. 
Yeah, which is an antibiotic. Yeah. And the first study, the first study only had 20 participants in it. And it was not randomized whatsoever. And there was no control group. If I tried to put this study together at my job, I might get demoted. <laughs> now, there are there are studies like this that do get published sometimes and it's not I'm not trying to say that these studies have absolutely no merit whatsoever. But when you compare the methodology of this study to the methodology of other studies, you do have to take into account which results are more reliable. Mm-hmm. So so this study in and of itself has really flawed methodology. So we actually did a second study which found similar results, and this time there were 80 patients involved. And okay, that's, that's a larger sample. And according, according to uh, his paper, they were randomized. There was an interview with infectious disease specialist Dr. Uh, Benjamin DeVito in which he basically pointed out that in order for him to have recruited this many patients as quickly as he did within the time frames of the study, they probably took people with essentially ambulatory forms of the disease, and thus they were less severe cases. Mm. And that's important to recognize because this also had no control group. Now, his argument for having no control group was one of ethics. Basically, um, you, you give these people some, uh, a drug that you think could save them, but you don't give that drug to other people. Except you have no reason to think it could save them. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you well, also I, are giving these people a drug that may harm them. So <laughs> you might yeah. be doing the placebo or the control group a yeah. service. Well, that, that's another important point because you can't control for a placebo effect. Yeah. Um, but the but the the really important thing to again say for this is that I'm not saying that this study has no merit whatsoever. I'm not saying that at all. But the methodology still needs to be held under a microscope in yeah. order to uh, in order to scrutinize it to make sure that you are getting the most effective results. So and this this kind of study is is effective for exploring the potential for new treatments, right? You'd want to start small. You don't know what the effects would be. You want to just see if it works or not. To get something like this to, you know, a, like to scale this to be able to be used on a, in a common basis and to be an effect, like assessed as an effective treatment, you have to follow uh, standardized testing protocols for clinical trials. This is like an initial phase type study that would then yeah. be used to support movement to a second phase. Yeah. So let's look at some uh, a more recent study um, and a little bit uh, with different methodologies and different results. So first, let's talk about a study that they did in China. Now, this was published in the British Medical Journal, BMJ, which is considered one of the gold standards of medical research. This study had a total of 150 patients. Half of them were in a treatment group and half of them were in a control group. So there was a control group and there was a much larger sample size and these were randomized and they were treated at 16 government designated COVID-19 treatment centers. And what they found was there was very little difference between the medium time to virus elimination, the probability 
of alleviating symptoms by 28 days. And the only real difference was that a safety analysis found that 30% of patients treated with hydroxychloroquine reported adverse effects compared to only 9% of patients who received standard care treatment. So not only was there very little difference between the alleviation of the symptoms and the treatment of the virus itself, but there was a higher rate of adverse effect among patients that were treated with hydroxychloroquine. Mm-hmm. Now, this was this study, because this is what studies do, did point out that one of the limitations of their study was that they primarily focused on some of the more later stages of the virus. And they noted that further research into the drug um, should focus on the first 48 hours. You know, because that's what you do in research. You always discuss the limitations of your study. So that brings us to another study that was conducted in France. And this was a study uh, with a sample size of 181 hospitalized patients. Um, 84 of the patients received hydroxychloroquine and 89 received standard treatment. And this was within, and and this was uh, focusing on the first 48 hours of hospital admissions. Now it is important to state that this was an observational study, whereas the China study was a field study, meaning that they were observing the, uh, a randomized number of patients who were getting hydroxychloroquine versus getting uh, a standard treatment. Whereas in China, they were specifically giving some people a standard treatment and other people um, the hydroxychloroquine in order to get the results. So that's one important distinction. This also found very little effectiveness um, in, the, uh, in the use of the drug. And this was measured in uh, the survival rate without transfer to ICU overall survival rate um, and the rate of survival without acute respiratory distress. And those numbers were very similar. I mean, there wasn't a statistically significant difference between them. So at the end of the day, the best studies are showing us that hydroxychloroquine really is not an effective treatment for COVID-19. So here's another observational study that had an even larger sample size. So one of the challenges with observational studies is that it's kind of a naturally like biased study because it's more likely that doctors would try an experimental drug like hydrochloroquine on patients that have potentially more severe symptoms. Um, But that's helped to be offset by a larger sample size and also controlling for Uh, other variables that you're able to control for once you get to a big sample size. So a group of medical researchers from schools around the U.S. um, compiled a study of records from 96,000 patients um, in different countries throughout the world, and uh, 15,000 of those patients received hydrochloroquine, and the remaining 81,000 did not. Um, And what they found was that there was some pretty significant Um, there's a pretty significant indication that um, hydrochloroquine, which has a known side effect of um, potential risks to um, like the proper functioning of the heart and uh, which, you know, coincides with a known impact of COVID-19 on um, heart disease. And so what they found was that um, 
the drug is is pretty significantly associated with um, disturbances in heart rhythm, so leading to uh, potentially fatal arrhythmia. And they found that, in fact, the group that received hydroxychloroquine after controlling for known risk factors like medical history and obesity and other things um, actually had twice the mortality rate of those that did not receive that drug. So basically, like, the summary of all this is that there is some, like, very limited evidence that this might be effective there is a growing amount of evidence that this either has no effect or may have a harmful effect. Um, and so basically, like, this is not a sure thing yet in any way. And so rallying cries that we should open up because we have a, a treatment is are just not appropriate at this time. And right now the FDA has approved a clinical trial for hydroxychloroquine. Um, using like a, a proper protocols on 2,000 patients, um, randomly selected, but all with positive COVID-19. They'll have a control group and they'll test hydroxychloroquine and um, along with the combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Um, and so like we may have an answer to this at some point, but right now it's it's really not clear and it could be potentially harmful. So please, like people have been trying to life hack their way out of coronavirus like since the beginning of this thing. This goes in the category right now of like drinking a bunch of alcohol to try to like sterilize yeah. your body. Don't yeah. do this. Like yeah. <laughs> don't don't TikTok taking hydroxychloroquine. It's it's really not a safe thing to do at this point. Yeah. And and the last point that I want to make on this is if it were just people who decide for themselves that they want to take hydroxychloroquine are only hurting themselves, I would still say, please don't take it because I don't want people to hurt themselves. But I might be less adamant. The reason why this is harmful, even beyond an individual choice hurting yourself, is the fact that hydroxychloroquine is used to treat malaria. And people that need it for the disease that it has already been tested on and is already being used on are experiencing shortages because there are people who are believing the president and they're taking hydroxychloroquine when they don't need to, mm -hmm. when they shouldn't. So if you need another reason to avoid hydroxychloroquine, unless, of course, it is recommended by your doctor because you have a disease that actually that it actually treats that it's actually proven to treat then just just don't take it and now time for one of our more positive segments tips for good so michael why do we do tips for good every week we do tips for good to bring facts or behaviors um, to you guys that if you enact them in your daily life can make the world a little bit of a better place. Um, and so this week, our tip for good is that, you know, if you can, if you have the ability, please donate food or money to organizations that help um, fight food insecurity in the United States and abroad. Um, because food insecurity has been you know, significantly impacted by the coronavirus. And these are already people who, you know, are some of the most vulnerable in our society. 
According to Feeding America in a 2018 study, about 37 million people in the U.S., or 11.5% of the population, um, including over 11 million children, um, are food insecure at any given time. And some estimates indicate that that number could increase by another 17 million to 18 million um, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, And so... You know, if you're able to give money or food to your local food bank, that could be huge. Um, It's pretty easy to find your local food bank, um, and they take cans and non-perishable goods. Think sometimes things that you have in your cabinet that you know you haven't used in a while. Um, You know, every little bit can really help people that are struggling right now, including a lot of kids that are going without food um, at this time. And beyond that, because, you know, I always like to bring it to an institutional level as well, recognize that food insecurity is a societal choice. Mm -hmm. And when I say societal choice, what I mean is that we have the resources to make sure that no person in the United States experiences food insecurity. And as it stands, we don't make that choice as a society. Mm -hmm. So support SNAP benefits, support initiatives in order to make uh, school lunches free, and overall, just be smart with your vote. So one of the subjects that has been in the news a lot recently um, has been voting, specifically making available mail-in voting um, to everybody as we're trying to keep people from, you know, getting into large groups during, you know, 2020 general election polling. So before we get started, I do just want to make one important point, And that is Michael and I are operating under the assumption that more voting is good. The more people participate in the electoral process, the better. Even if they don't necessarily result in the elected officials that we want, more voting is good because we believe in democracy. Mm-hmm. And if you are operating under that assumption, then we can have a productive conversation about this. If you are not operating under that assumption, then the only logical conclusion is that you think that in order to win, you need to suppress the votes. Mm-hmm. Instead of, I don't know, having better policies. But let's go ahead and make sure that we're all clear that we are operating under the assumption that voting is a good thing. The whole goal is to get as many um, citizens of the United States to vote as possible. We want participation. Participation is representation. Representation is what makes our system work for the citizens of our nation. And so... You know, that means representation of all groups and some of the most, you know, like difficult and frustrating outcomes of our currently disproportionate and and non and less representative electoral process is that it systematically is biased and less representative of certain disadvantaged groups. And to the extent that we can solve that, we should take all reasonable action to do so. So with all of that said... We have had voting and specifically mail-in voting in the news a lot. You know, 
with as part of the response to the COVID pandemic, um, we've been like Democrats have been pushing for making mail-in voting um, nationwide to allow for people to be able to um, participate in the electoral process without having to expose themselves to the disease. Um, we saw an early on like a foreshadowing of these kinds of decisions in Wisconsin when the Democratic governor of Wisconsin um, tried to basically open up restrictions on voting a little bit, allowing extending the deadline and allowing more people to uh, vote absentee or vote via mail, um, you know, than would have been able to otherwise uh, based on the deadline for, for voting uh, by mail. And that was shut down by the legislature and then subsequently quashed by the Supreme Court as well. And that was also famously when uh, the Wisconsin Speaker of the House was wearing full protective gear at a voting place saying, it's totally safe. Come on. Yes, exactly. I think he made it onto our he, asshat Yeah, list. he was our asshat that week. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, so so all of this stuff is really top of mind. And we knew back in Wisconsin that this was going to be a, a really big issue for us to understand and discuss in advance of the 2020 election. But the challenge is that there's been a lot of bad faith arguments, some a ton of motivated reasoning, and, um, you know, misinformation out there about mail-in voting and specifically arguing that it should be a very limited practice if allowed at all. Yeah. One really weird case was this tweet that Donald Trump sent about uh, Michigan's Democratic Secretary of State um, where he accused the secretary of illegally sending absentee ballots to 7.7 million people. The Secretary of State, uh, Jocelyn Benson, issued a correction where she clarified that um, these are applications, not ballots. And she also pointed out that GOP colleagues in Iowa, Georgia, Nebraska, and West Virginia are doing the same damn thing. Mm -hmm. So then his original tweet was deleted, and then six hours later... He posted a tweet adding the word applications, but still claiming that it's illegal. That it's illegal for the Secretary of State to send out applications for absentee voting. Now, the National Conference of State Legislatures does say that all states in the U.S. do allow qualified voters to vote absentee. And currently, there are five states, Utah, Colorado, Hawaii, Washington, and Oregon, who are currently conducting all of their elections primarily by mail. So the state government absolutely does have the authority to send people applications. There's nothing illegal about that. So, mm -hmm. so let's talk about what is Trump's criticism of mail-in ballots. And let's talk about what the criticisms he actually says. And let's talk about um, some of the more in-deep reasons behind it so you know in accordance with what nathan mentioned at the top of the uh, top of the segment um the claim we should really be evaluating is is there evidence that mail-in voting leads to signif a significant increase in voter fraud that has an effect on the outcome of our elections if it doesn't lead to more voter fraud um and even if it leads to slightly more voter fraud that has no impact then we should just do it because it has significant advantages to participation and enfranchisement. Yeah. 
So let's talk about what is true and what is not. So one thing, one fact that is actually true, and this is according to a News 21 um, study that was conducted between the year 2000 and 2012. Um, and the reason why those time periods are important was because 2012 was right before um, there was another major push for comprehensive voter ID laws in order to fight voter fraud. So that's why, uh, that's why we're specifically looking at those dates. So this study did find that the most prevalent type of voter fraud was actually from absentee voting. In fact, 24% of prosecutions were actually abs from absentee ballots. So that part is true. However, you have to look at the total number of cases of fraud. And the total number of cases was 491 mm -hmm. out of billions of votes cast. Billions. So while there is a little bit more voter fraud under absentee ballots, voter fraud in general is extremely rare. Yeah. And they're actually pretty easy to, easy to prosecute. Now, you might argue that it is very possible that that number is probably bigger, that there are cases in which people have not caught. And that's a fair point. The number is probably bigger than 491, but it is very unlikely to be significantly more. And also, like, it seems like the, the things people are really, really worried about is wide-scale voter fraud, like times yeah. when you know, some kind of organized effort has, you know, changed the outcome of the election because of thousands of votes. That voter fraud is even easier to detect because it takes organization, it takes communication. It like when we have those large scale, loud cases that get in the news about voter fraud, it's because we found them because they're big. Yeah. You know, for, tiny for, little cases of, of one off people who are, you know, said they were a witness to an absentee ballot, but actually they weren't, you know, are yeah. much more common on an individual scale. Yeah, and those don't really sway elections. And one of the most widely reported example of absentee fraud was in a case during the 2018 midterm election, which was in North Carolina's 9th District, where they were caught. The election results were overturned when it was learned that um, a Republican operative had been improperly collecting and altering or discarding ballots in order to sway the election in favor of Republican Mark Harris. So this, this was the last major instance of this, and it was a Republican. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you need to create these comprehensive voter ID laws and you can't have absentee voting or vote-by-mail elections because... Um, because it's going to let Democrats win, there's no evidence that vote by mail, and we talked about this in a previous episode, there's no evidence that vote by mail actually advantages one party over another. Mm -hmm. And there aren't any recent examples, wide, of major examples, of a Democrat who won because of election tampering. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, on top of that, the president himself and the vice president and multiple members of the cabinet <laughs> voted absentee in the primary. Mm -hmm. 
And the funny thing about that is when they when they asked Donald Trump, hey, how do you reconcile the fact that you're against vote by mail when you did vote by mail to vote in the Florida primary? He tried to make the argument that there is somehow a difference between out of state and in state. That it was different because he was out of state. And somehow I guess that makes it less it makes it more secure. And there's there's no evidence whatsoever that it is more secure to do absentee voting out of state than it is to do it in state. The logic is ridiculous on his face. Mm -hmm. So he can't make the argument that we can't have vote by mail because it's fraudulent and it's unreliable and then turn around and vote by mail and then defend it. It's ridiculous. So the only logical explanation for why he could possibly be this against vote by mail is not because he wants to, to protect the election security. It's not because he wants to promote people voting. It's because he wants to promote people not voting. Mm-hmm. He knows that he has screwed up. He knows that he screwed up this pandemic. And he knows that if there is a major turnout, in the 2020 election that he is going to get obliterated and he's doing everything he can to protect his power. And the thing is, you might think, Oh, well, Nathan, you're speculating. You don't know what's inside his mind, but he admitted this. He actually admitted it. He said the quiet part out loud. Again, he was in a Fox news interview. He was on an interview on Fox and friends. And this was when he was talking about some of the vote-by-mail proposals in uh, one of the early stimulus packages that were proposed by the Democrats. And and this stimulus package proposed more resources to vote-by-mail. And he said, he, he said that some of the things in that package were ridiculous. If it passed, there would be levels of voting in which you'd never see another Republican elected again. So he admitted that the reason is to prevent more people from voting so that Republicans can get elected. That is what authoritarians do. They suppress the vote in order to maintain their power. They can't just make their policies better. They can't do a better job as candidates. They have to suppress the vote. Yeah. And when you suppress, like the common methods for suppressing voting in the United States, which are you know, often voter ID laws, purging voter records. Um, you know, one one attempt that was active in the mid-2000s and then was just shut down in 2019 was like an interstate um, regist- voter registration cross-check program. Um, all, of these, all of these programs tend to disenfranchise specific groups of disadvantaged individuals, often specifically people of color, um, low-income people, and you know those are just the methods that we have in place to try to fight fraud and end up specifically disadvantaging um, the most like vulnerable people in our society and the people that need to be represented so that their voices can be heard. So, so, so limiting voting means limiting voting to you know, middle class and up on average white people. Yeah. And so, you know, we're not just talking about, 
like the theoretical validity of a democratic society. We're talking about the specific and measurable impacts and voices of people that need the support and help of the government. And those are just the specific methods that we use to combat voter fraud. That's on top of the fact that our method for voting in general tends to be significantly biased. You know, if you work in a blue-collar job, good luck, good luck getting time off in order to go to the polls, you know? Like, if you want a caucus in Iowa, you better be able to get off work early and spend four to five hours arguing with your friends in a gymnasium. Like, our system advantages people who have the ability to take time to participate in it. When really we should be aiming to open up our system as much as possible, give people as many options as possible to increase enfranchisement, representation, and, you know, the inclusiveness of our of voting in the United States. There's a reason that turnout is so low in the United States. It's like people like to, people often chalk it up to people not wanting to participate, but there are large groups of people that just can't. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat Hat of, of the, the week. week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Well, Michael, this feels like a throwback to a time that was not as bad as it is today, but still pretty bad. Carl Rove. Wow, I haven't heard about him in a while. Yep, Carl Rove. For those of you that were born in 2008 or never cared about the Bush administration. Carl Rove is a former senior is a former senior advisor to George W. Bush and he is now a heavily pro-Trump guy, which is no surprise at all. Mm-hmm. So what did he do? So he was on Fox and Friends, which is of course Michael's and my favorite show. Yes, yeah, and a great starting place for all asshats. We st- usually start there when looking for them. <laughs> we've had so many inter- we've had so yes. many asshats that come from Fox and Friends interviews. We really should like throw them a bone, like uh, yeah, know, just a like, shout out you, every time. Shout shout out to them. You you provide us with yeah. endless an endless stream of asshats, and we appreciate that. Yes, the U.S. number one producer of asshats. <laughs> so, Carl Rove was responding to a recent address that Barack Obama gave as a commencement to several historically black colleges online, and. Obama made some pretty subtle digs at President Trump. So he talked about how uh, the leadership does not know what they're doing, and a lot of them aren't even pretending to. Now, he never even mentions Trump's name. It's interesting how whenever we talk about incompetence in government, (laughs) people's minds immediately go to President Trump. I wonder why that is. Hmm. So anyways, Karl Rove said... In response to it, quote, It is so unseemly for a former president to take the virtual commencement ceremony for a series of historically black colleges and universities and turn it into a political drive-by shooting. <laughs> That's, it's more like a political drive-by, like, blowing bubbles out the window. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, like, oh my gosh, he didn't even why would you choose that metaphor? It was so lackluster. Well, yeah. first off, let's let's address the obvious. 
this is dog whistling. Yeah. Seriously. I mean, it's clearly racial dog whistling. Mm-hmm. Um, but even beyond that, I mean, let's let's analyze this a bit more. So first off, Obama has gone out of his way to not criticize Trump. And this wasn't even like he didn't even directly talk about Trump. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of my criticisms of Obama right now is that he's been so quiet about the mayhem of the Trump administration. And also, the whole, like, it's unseemly for a a former president to criticize um, the current president. First off, does anybody, anybody believe that when Trump is no longer president, that he's just going to be quiet about the current president. Mm-hmm. Does anybody believe that? If Joe Biden gets elected president, does anybody believe that Trump will not be talking crap about him on Twitter every single day for the rest of his life? And does you know, anybody believe that? You know, and you know, it's way better than all that. You know, it's like, is the current president acting like a child towards the previous president? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so, President Trump can fabricate a scandal against Obama. He every can, other day. <laughs> every, every other day. He can blame everything on Obama. Including not having tests for COVID. Exactly. <laughs> like, he can, like, he can endlessly berate the Obama administration on every single possible thing he can think of, and many that he can't. And yet, Obama makes a subtle jab at Trump, and suddenly Karl Rove is like, oh, the indecency, sir. <laughs> yeah, talking about the erosion of norms and things, like, I think Trump's probably doing a worse job. <laughs> he, like, like, erosion happens over time. He's blown them up with yeah, TNT. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, like, if you think that's a good thing, fine. Mm-hmm. But be consistent about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no kidding. That that dog whistling comment, or it's just, uh, <laughs> yeah. Come on, dude. So a hearty congratulations to Carl Rove for being our ass hat of, of the, the week. week. All right. Up next is my interview with Senator Richard Ojeda. All right. Today we have a very special guest. He is a former member of the United States Armed Forces former state senator from West Virginia, former presidential candidate, and current candidate to the United States Senate from the state of West Virginia, uh, Senator Richard Ojeda. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you guys for having me on. All right, so let's get right into it. Currently, the discussions that are on everybody's minds are discussions about COVID-19. So in what ways has COVID-19 uniquely affected West Virginia? Well, uh, I think it's affected every state across this country. I mean, you know, nobody would have thought just a few months ago that we would find ourselves in the middle of a global pandemic that, uh, you know, has affected everyone, whether it be being able to to not buy certain items uh, at the grocery stores to people going home, entire school, uh, you know, school, uh, school shut down, senior years completely, uh, you know, erased. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's a big deal. And, and of course, you know, uh, I think that sadly what we are seeing is that money is more important uh, than anything else in this country. So therefore 
Corporations are not making money if people are sitting at home. So now they are basically screaming, everything is essential, get back to work. Yeah. Uh, and I have a feeling that what's going to happen on the, on the back end of this is going to be far worse than what we've seen so far. Uh, and of course, the experts have told us that. And of course, we have people that don't want to listen to the medical experts and only care about money. So that's where we're at. Yeah. So there have been a lot of criticisms about the current uh, proposals for the stimulus package, both the one that uh, has already passed and the one that um, passed the House of Representatives, but is probably going to be dead on arrival um, in the Senate. Um, so if you're in the Senate, what is your ideal COVID-19 stimulus package? It's about putting money in the, in, the, in the pockets of the working class citizens. You know, trickle down economics does not work, but they've pushed that type of, of, of mentality for, since, since the Reagan years. And what they have found is that it does not work. No different than in the beginning of Donald Trump's presidency, where he gave the largest tax grab, biggest, you know, for, for the top 1% in the history. And now we see that it has done nothing except put money in the pockets of the filthy rich. Yeah. Trickle up economics is what I believe absolutely can work because when you give citizens a little money, they spend it locally on the economy and that helps the local economies pick back up, which we've seen basically be devastated over the past couple decades. So, you know, to me, trying to put money into the hands of the working class citizens is something that we should be doing. And those are the people that we should be trying to bail out. We've never bailed out the working class citizens. We've always bailed out the banks, the cruise line industries, the airports and everything else. So I think that what we should be doing is trying to help the people that are working class. Now, of course, what we are seeing is that for them to give anything to the working class, first, we have to promise to give even far more to the filthy rich. And that's yeah. what's wrong with this country. That's what's wrong with this, these packages. And that's where we're at. Yeah. So, so you, would you say that you support the proposal uh, by Senator Bernie Sanders to um, do a monthly payments of $2,000 to every American? Absolutely. I mean, and to me, look at what that's going to do to local economies. I live in a place where when you drive through the town of Logan, the majority of buildings are empty. The, 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 the windows are empty. There's nothing there. The reason for that's because Walmart showed up. Now, make no mistake about it. I go to Walmart all the time. But yeah. what Walmart does is it absolutely destroys mom and pop stores. If you put money into everyone's pockets, it would absolutely be worth it to start a local business because now people have money in their pockets that they can spend locally. And maybe that is what can bring back the local mom and pop stores because the truth is, if you take 37,000 people in Logan County, West Virginia, that are adults, and you put $2,000 in their pockets every month, could you imagine if you have a good business that people want to frequent how much money you could make? You could be a very successful business person for the first time in a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, out of curiosity, so you definitely support um, a sort of temporary UBI. Uh, would you actually support a UBI, um, a universal basic income, outside yes. of a crisis? Yes, absolutely. You know, let me tell you, Andrew Yang has proven by doing the math that it can work. I believe that when you put money into the average citizen, first off, when you give money to the filthy rich, they put it in offshore accounts, yeah. shove it in a mattress. 
It never benefits the people. But once again, if you give it to the average citizen, then, you know, they, they, and they spend it on the local economy, look at what we can do. And, and Andrew Yang has proven by doing the math that we can do that. I think that for the first time in our history, we would actually see local economies pick back up and boom. Yeah. So uh, one of the big parts of your brand is talking about the financial elite, the fact that um, the, the top 1%, the top one-tenth of 1% own a massive amount of wealth in the United States. Uh, what, what specific uh, policies do you think we could incorporate in order to create a much more economically equitable um, tax code? Well, I, I just think that at the end of the day, nobody ever looks out for the working class. Nobody ever yeah. does. You know, the, the filthy rich in this country are the ones that always win. And, you know, I, I just think that we can't continue going down that path. Eventually, one of these days, we're going to go off the end of a cliff. Uh, and, you know, I just I think it's absolutely sickening that we have what we have going on in this country where, you know, the average citizen doesn't have a chance. You know, the the we know, you know, the American dream, American dream is dead for most people. You know, most people barely survive from payday to payday. And, and it's not just, you know, people that you would assume poor. We're talking about teachers. We're talking about police officers and firefighters. We're talking about, you know, uh, uh, just you, you name the profession. People are struggling in this country and we don't have anybody at the top that's willing to fight for these people. I come from Logan County, West Virginia. My state is always 48th, 49th in everything. You know, yeah. so I, I mean, I, I'm trying to go to Washington D.C. and fight for opportunities for West Virginia so that we can have something because right now we don't, and and we're the state. My state is progressively losing citizens every single every single year. I mean, for the past 15 years, we've lost residents. We've lost over 60,000 people in just the last four years. That's 60,000 taxpayers. You know, I want to go to Washington, D.C. and fight so that West Virginia can finally have something because make no mistake about it, we're dying. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you brought up teachers. One of the things that you're very well known for is your advocacy during the teacher strikes in West Virginia. Um, so you definitely demonstrated during that time that you, you do have uh, an effective ability to uh, create grassroots enthusiasm around certain issues. How can you bring that experience that you got from that, the grassroots organizing, to the United States Senate? I think that nobody has really seen anybody like me. You know, look, I say the things that I believe in and I don't give a shit if you like it or not. I'm going to tell you how I feel. And if I see things that are being done that are wrong, I'm going to highlight those things. Never walk past something that you know is wrong and fail to make comment for if you do, you have now accepted a new lower standard. Let me tell you something. Nobody's willing to go to Washington DC and light these people up like I will. I don't care. I don't care. Look, you know, I'm not out there trying to be a lifetime politician. I want to bring term limits to, to, to every single uh, elected position across this daggone country. But make no mistake about it. I want to go to Washington, D.C. so that I can absolutely every single day pick one of those bills that are sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk waiting to die and highlighting how they can benefit citizens, but they won't because of greedy bastards like him and his people that around him. And maybe then we can start opening people's eyes across this country and realizing that we got to get rid of them, that they are what's wrong with this country. 
I, I, I absolutely despise the oxygen that Mitch McConnell breathes, but he's not the only one. There's lots of other people in Washington, D.C. that could care less. And what's sad is you know you, you mentioned the teacher strike. I have absolutely never pushed one single bill that put a penny in my pocket. Not one single penny. I made West Virginia the 29th state for medical cannabis because I care about sick people that deserve to have a non-addictive form of pain management. And yet, I can't, I, honestly, I, I didn't even get the teacher support during my last campaign. That's true. It's a fact. If teachers would have supported me in where I'm from, I would have won. I would have beat Carol Miller, but they didn't because people have short attention spans and it's all about what can you do for them today. Yeah. So, so we definitely do need to drum up more enthusiasm behind a lot of these issues, fighting corruption, uh, getting money out of politics, all of that. So, um, so what strategy, strategic ideas do you have in order to do that? Not just in West Virginia, but uh, technically you're going to be representing the whole country. So in what ways are you going to try to bring that to, to the rest of the country? Well, I, th I think that by me going there and getting on that stage, I'm going to make people in, 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 in Oregon better. I'm going to fight for things across this country that we don't see fought, people fighting for. You know, everybody wants to talk a good game, but nobody ever goes forward and does it. I love during campaign season where people come down and they promise all this stuff and then they win and you don't hear from them ever again until it's election time. Make no mistake about it. That's not going to be me. You're going to see me on the news quite often because I'm going to be calling people out. You know, yeah. I don't care. I'm going to say what I believe needs to be said. You know, I got skin in this game. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, I am the perfect uh, selection for any veteran out there that wants better. You know, I think I bring a lot to the table. Uh, I've worked as a teacher, you know. I, I have plans to do things like a national pay scale for teachers and school service personnel and correctional officers. I believe that I can do those things. I'm going to fight for cannabis across this country, not just medical cannabis, but absolute. If, if, if states want to go ahead and allow that, then it's okay by me because we know now that the, 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 the evil that they tried to use to keep, to keep cannabis from ever doing anything in this country, we now know was just used so that they can make money with the paper industry, the alcohol industry, and things like that. I want to, I want to open the jails and let the people out that are in there for weed. I think it's garbage. We can do so much better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another, another huge, uh, you know, you, you briefly mentioned in there, um, another huge uh, thing that you uh, sell your brand on is anti-corruption. Um, so, and you've been very quick to call out corruption in both the Republican Party and the Don't Democratic care. Party. Yeah. Um, even though you do consider yourself a Democrat. So in what ways do you think the Democratic Party needs to change itself so that it gets that corruption out and starts look, representing the people look, again. Look, I'm a real Democrat. That's the problem is we got people that call themselves Democrats that are not real Democrats. That's just the way that it is. Real Democrats take care of the working class. That's it. Real Democrats support unions because unions give the working class citizens a seat at the table, collective bargaining. Okay. But they don't want to let unions survive. If we had real Democrats, we'd be fighting for the working class citizens. We'd be fighting for the elderly. 
Once again, every single time you turn around, they're trying to stick their hands in the cookie jar of Social Security. They don't want Social Security to survive. If you're a real Democrat, what you're going to do is you're going to fight to raise the cap so that Social Security will be there for our children. If I'm going to send you away and break you in combat, I'm going to fix you when you come home. Real Democrats take care of their veterans. Okay, and real Democrats want to create opportunities for those who live in poverty to elevate themselves out of poverty. That's what real Democrats do. Let me tell you something. There's not very many real Democrats left, but we need to start bringing those people back out and getting back to the basics. So uh, would you do that by changing the way the current Democrats uh, who are in Washington, how they act, how they um, carry themselves, how they, or vote them out? out. I'm gonna call them all out. Yeah. Point blank. If if you're not if you're not fighting for friggin' unions in Washington D.C., then you're not a real Democrat. And and now that you know the 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 Democrats have taken back the House, how come we have not attacked right to work legislation? Why do we not hear about that? We are the majority in the House. At, at a minimum, even if, the, even if the Senate wants to can the bills, we should be pushing bills right now from the House that absolutely attack right to work. Because a right to work is a union-busting group of legislation. That's all it is. We need to be fighting that. But we don't hear about it. Make no mistake about it. I'll go to Washington, D.C., and on day one, we'll push legislation to do away with right to work. And if a Democrat doesn't support me, I'll call that Democrat out. Fact. I don't care. Yeah. I don't need to be there 20, 30 years. Just give me one opportunity, one stint as a U.S. senator, and I'll get shit done. And if I don't, poof, I'll disappear and you won't see me again. Hmm. I don't need to be a lifetime politician. I think we need to do away with lifetime politicians. I'm the one that wants term limits. I'm the guy that wants to make a lobbyist wear body cameras. Yeah. Because then if you saw the things that went on behind the scenes, maybe your representative would be less, least likely to sell you out if he knew eyes were upon him or her. Yeah, yeah. that's another proposal that I, I really appreciate, um, the, the body cams on, on lobbyists. So would you, would you say that any lobbyists that come to your office, are you going to make them wear body cameras? Absolutely. Look, well, first off, you know, if, I can't, if I can't get something passed, I can't make them, but make no mistake about it. Wouldn't bother me at all to put a camera in my office and everybody that come in there, sit down was on camera. It wouldn't bother me at all. Would not bother me one single bit. Let me tell you something. I've thrown big energy out of my office. That's on West Virginia. That's on, it's at the West Virginia Capitol. And I watched the things that they did. They come in there and they sit down. It was two guys and a gorgeous young lady. And they were trying to get me to basically sign on to a thing called forced pooling, which was basically giving them, giving the companies the ability to take people's land. And I said, hell no, I'm not going to put up with that. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the pretty girl said, is there anything that I could do to change your mind? I said, you can get your ass up and you can get out of my office. And that there was witnesses to that. Wow. So I don't care. I don't care. Don't come in my office and try to play no games with me. I believe it should be recorded. And I wouldn't have a problem at all having a camera in my office and everybody that comes in there has to daggone be on film. Wouldn't bother me a bit. Yeah. Um, so one of the biggest criticisms that people often have about uh, corruption, uh, particularly when it comes to lobbyists, is that the system that allows for lobbyists to have as much power as they do is our campaign finance system. So in what ways do you think we need to, uh, what specific ways can we reform our campaign finance system? Well, first and foremost, once again, we've got to get rid of Citizens United. 
you yeah. know, corporations are not people and money is not free speech. So yeah. that right there alone, it needs to be dealt with. You know, the problem that we have in this country is that, you know, there is the ability for companies to do things during elections that are not seen by the average person. I think that there needs to be light shined on everything. Uh, yeah. And I believe that if there was, then we would finally see a system start to get clean again. And that's what we need to do. You know, uh, I just, I, I think that, you know, everything that, that people do as a politician, all the money that comes in, it needs to be known where it comes from. Let me tell you, I'm gonna tell you a story. West Virginia has had a horrible history with electric bills, okay? So in West Virginia, we've got single wide trailers with $700 a month electric bill. How on earth is that even possible? So what I did was I wanted to call for an investigation into Appalachian Power because what Appalachian Power also did was when people get together and come up with a plan to save on their electric bill and Appalachian Power ends up not making as much as they want, they get to punish the people and make the people pay even more for their garbage. Okay. So what I did was I pushed a resolution to investigate Appalachian Power. And I'm sitting in there on the Senate floor behind my desk and it pops up on the, on the board and then it disappears. It's supposed to be read so we can move forward and go ahead and let me call for an investigation. It disappears. And the Senate president looks me in the face and goes, and do you want to know why he did that? Because Appalachian Power gave $186,000 to people in their chairs around me. You understand? So there was no way on this earth they were going to even allow for me to call for an investigation into people that put money in their pocket. And that's the kind of stuff that we have that goes on. And it goes on on the states. And let me tell you something. You think corruption on the state level is bad. It's 20 times worse on the national level. Listen to what lobbyist organizations does. Read the lobbyist handbook, playbook, okay? And they'll tell you what they do. They go into a person's office. If I win as a senator, they probably won't do me because they will have done their research. But what, they <laughs> average, what the average uh, situation is, is that they go in and they say, how are you doing there, brand new freshman senator? We would like to hire you when you're done being a senator. And oh, by the way, you got a salary of 174,000, but the moment that they hire you, it's 2.5 million. So yeah. now you got a person that's sitting in their desk and they're a legislator. But instead of thinking about doing things to help their people, they're more focused on doing things that's gonna help that company that just promised them a job making 2.5 million. So now everything and anything that that company has, they are gonna make sure that they push, they're gonna push to try to get it passed. You see? Yeah. Because they are wanting that job. And that's why we should make it illegal for anybody that is a legislator to ever become a friggin' lobbyist. Yeah. If we yeah. took that away, then maybe we would not see people so, so uh, just wanting to sell their people out. You know, let me tell you, it's dirty. It's filthy. Yeah. And, you know, people, people can listen to what I say. Yeah, I'm, I know I'm animated. I'm, I raise my hands a lot. 
you know? But, but what am I always arguing about? What am I always bitching about? I'm bitching about this garbage that we have in our country that's corruption. I'm, I'm, I'm griping about the ability for companies to grease legislators' pockets and get some of the most amazing things passed that should have never even been thought of. But it happens because of this. People yeah. care more about this than they care about their people. Yeah. And I really wish that I could say that those stories that you said are, are surprising to me, but um, they're, not, they're really not. Yeah. And they're not surprising to anybody. And think about that. You know, it amazes me. Look at the corruption that we have. And, and let me tell you something. You don't have to be a, a, a private investigator to be able to look and go, that's corrupt. Mitch McConnell has one job, one job. He is a U.S. Senator for the state of Kentucky. That job pays $176,000 a year, okay? Tell me something. How on earth does a person like him go from making $176,000 to just literally 10 years later being worth $26 million? How do you do that? You've got one job. The salary is $174,000. How can you be worth that much money? Yeah. It's corrupt. Yeah. So, so you mentioned... Um, you mentioned that you support the overturning of Citizens United. You mentioned yes. that um, you support a lifetime ban on people in Congress from being lobbyists. Um, would you would you also support public funding of elections? Absolutely. You know, I'll tell you right now, I think, what is it, uh, 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 Portland, Oregon? You know, how they kind of work the system out where, you know, you give every citizen is, is allowed this much money and they have to, they could give it, you know, to, to whoever. Yeah, democracy dollars. Yeah. Look, I'll exactly. I mean, to me, honestly, wouldn't that be perfect? I mean, yeah. it should not be to where a corporation can come in here and can drown out your opponent just because they know that you're going to go there and be their puppet. Yeah. Look, I'm telling you right now, corruption, we got corruption everywhere. We got corruption on all levels. You can go to any town in America and say, who's a crooks? And every single person will say, well, that guy who's on the county commission, he's dirty. And that guy who's a magistrate, he's dirty. And this woman on the board of education, she's dirty. Everybody knows who the crooks are, but nothing ever gets done. Do you know I had my medical records stolen from the VA? Yeah, I did hear about that, actually. You know that the, the guy got a slap on the wrist? Yeah insane i was almost murdered i took a pipe to the back of the head i got i got 58 metal plates in my face from brass knuckles the guy didn't do six months yeah you understand and this was while you were running for senate do what this is this was while you were running for senate right yeah two days before i won my seat i was almost murdered how come there was never no real investigation yeah you understand because the powers that be that are against those fighting for people We'll do everything in their power to make sure nothing happens. These crooks on the local stage, they get away with the, what they get away with because they're part of the clique yeah. that runs these places. Yeah, and you have, you have a fair amount of personal experience with this even beyond your experience in the Senate. When you tried to run for president, um, you, you ended up dropping out because you weren't getting coverage and you didn't want to keep uh, taking people's, uh, you didn't, didn't want to keep people, taking look, people's look, money, look, yeah. Look at where I was at. I mean, I was on the Morning Joe. I was on State of the Union. I was on Meet the Press. I was on all those shows. Yeah. But yet, not once. I would, I would sit on the stage or inside the room there with, uh, on the Morning Joe 
gave one of the best little little one-liners ever that, that went viral immediately. But yet, you know, they never list, listed me as presidential candidate Richard Ojeda. Never. <laughs> the only time Chuck Todd was the only person that said presidential candidate Richard Ojeda. But he said it when I dropped out. Presidential candidate Richard Ojeda has dropped from the race, has suspended his race. That's yeah. the only time it was said. And the reason why is because they don't want to give me any breath. They don't want a person like me to actually move forward. Because yeah. at the end of the day, I don't have all of this. I don't have the political clout that they believe you have to have to be able to run in, in for such a high position, which I think is absolute garbage. I yeah. really do. Yeah. You know, look at the, let me tell you something. If I would have made it to that first debate stage, I guarantee you, I would have caught fire, fire. Because let me tell you something, nobody had the guts to say what I was going to say. Do you know what I would have done to Beto O'Rourke when he said the biggest problem we have is climate change? <laughs> I would have destroyed him right there. Whether or not they told me I could speak, I would have lit into him. Because don't you dare tell me that climate change is a big issue to you when you accept more money from big energy than any member of Congress. If yeah. he would have won and would have and would would be the one running for president and he won, he would spend his entire time tap dancing on why he can't fix climate change because behind the scenes he's still getting money rushed to him. Yeah. Don't you dare tell me you're going to fight the opioid epidemic in this country, Kamala Harris, uh, uh Cory Booker when you have taken more money from big pharma than anybody else. You're not yeah. going to fight. You're not going to fight the opioid epidemic. You're going to make excuses as to why you can't. And that's yeah. a problem with me. We've lost more lives than all of the lives lost during the Vietnam war every year for the past six years due to the opioid epidemic. And nobody's got the guts to stand up and fight it because they're yeah. cowards and they get their pockets greased by big pharma. Yeah. One of, one of the uh, criticisms of you that actually really uh, uh, annoys me when people say this is um, they find uh, the anger uh, abrasive. But I guess I would say that when you're talking about the issues that you're talking about, issues that are causing thousands and hundreds of thousands of people pissed. to die, you should be pissed. You should be pissed. You should be pissed. These people exactly. use that. They use that against me. Oh, he's just angry. Let me tell you something. If somebody poisons your child, should you not be angry? Yeah. Absolutely. When we have so many people dying every single year in this country, people should be pissed. Look, I tell people all the time, I got skin in this game. I spent 24 years in the military. The people that I served with in the military were some of the greatest leaders ever, ever, ever. And then you come home and you see these Bush League leaders on the civilian side, county commissioners with their hands in the cookie jar, people running the county commission with their hands in the cookie jar. You see big pharma. You see daggone opioids being thrown around like Tic Tacs. My daughter, when she was 12 years old, had a tooth extraction. They sent her home with 45 oxys, hydrocodone. That's what they sent her home with. She was 12. You know, I never gave her the first damn one. We flushed that. Yeah. You take a damn ibuprofen. But the thing is, is that's what they do. 
They, they throw these things like they're nothing. All you have to do, five days on any opioid, you now have dependency. It's destroying this country, and we don't have anybody. And oh, by the way, you need to understand that they did some research on these companies that used my home state, West Virginia, as their lab rats. And yeah. we've, we've captured the emails that said, they're eating them up like Doritos. Keep them coming, boys. They got that. Now you tell me those people shouldn't be held accountable, shouldn't be put to death for the things that they've thrown onto our people. They should, people like that should be, should be literally should be put to death in this country and they get away with it because of this. Um, the final thing I wanted to ask you about, just sort of like to sum everything up. So currently in West Virginia, um, you have Joe Manchin as uh, a Democratic senator there, which, um, you know, if you ask my wife, he Democrat only in name. Um, and I'm sure that you have similar criticisms of him. Um, but that does demonstrate that there are enough people in the state of West Virginia willing to vote for a Democrat. So my question to you is, how do you get those those people in West Virginia to show up and vote for you uh, to beat Shelley Moore Capita? You know, all I can do is just do what I do, you know, and, and ask people, if you want somebody that's going to go to Washington, D.C., that's going to actually fight for you, I'm the one. Shelley Moore Capita has been a politician for 26 plus years, and she's done nothing except show up right before the election, and then she disappears. She votes against women every time. She votes against equal pay for men and women every time. It is what it is, you know. Uh, will Joe Manchin step up and support me? I, I can't be. I can. I cannot honestly tell you that I can count on his support. I, I. I don't know if I can, and I hate to say that. You know, when Shelley Moore Capito, matter of fact, when 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 uh, Joe Manchin was running against Patrick Morrissey, Shelley Moore Capito did some spots for Patrick Morrissey against Joe Manchin. But will Joe Manchin support me? I, I wish I could say that he would but I can't guarantee that. I can't even guarantee that unions are gonna support me. And here's why. Because right now the mentality on unions, especially at the top, their mentality is, well, you know, Republicans don't really support us. They're all supporting right to work, which is against us. But maybe if we start endorsing these Republicans, they'll start coming around to our side. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen, they will not do that. Republicans do not do that. And the, the powers that be do not ever want to allow right to work to disappear. So when they endorse these Republicans, they are literally cutting their own throat and they're already endorsing. Some of them have already endorsed Shelley Moore Capito. Shelley Moore Capito did not fight to get that coal miners pension bill out from the stack of Mitch McConnell. The only reason why that bill saw the light of day is Matt Bevin, the governor of Kentucky, got beat. And McConnell got scared and said, Republicans are getting beat in Kentucky. I've got coal miners that are struggling on the eastern part of the state, so I'll pull this bill out and I'll get it passed, and then they'll be happy again. So naturally, Shelley Moore Capito voted yes, which gave our coal miners their pension. But for, six, for, for the last six, eight years, where has she really been? How come she hasn't been the front runner fighting against Mitch McConnell, her own party, and saying, get that bill out because that benefits my people? She hasn't. But the UMWA have endorsed her. So 
I think it's I think it's a slap in the face of every coal miner. Yeah, that's just the way I feel. Senator Richard Ojeda, thank you so much for joining us. And to our listeners, if you are interested in helping to support uh, Richard Ojeda's campaign, you can find him at uh, voteojeda2020.com. Mr. Senator, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Wow, what an awesome interview. I seriously wish that I could have participated in that. Yeah, no, he he is... He is truly one of the most genuine people I've ever talked to. Like I've, I've talked to politicians before, like both uh, uh, on, and I've seen them both on camera and off camera. And it's like, it's like night and day, you know, mm-hmm. it's two different personas, but I actually stayed behind and talked to, uh, to Senator Ojeda for a little bit um, after we had finished the interview and no difference. I mean, you know, what you saw in what you heard in the interview, that's who he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I feel like I could like see myself having had a barbecue with that guy. Like it's a, it's it's on Memorial Day, and I like you know growing up he would have been at all our picnics. Yeah, that kind of um, that kind of person. Yeah, but at the end of the day, like he's not here to barbecue; he's here to fight corruption. So exactly. uh, that that's that's one of the things I respect about him. So you know, thank thanks again, uh, Senator Ojeda, for for joining us. And uh, Michael, let's go ahead and end the podcast with our highlights. Awesome. Yeah, so my highlight this week um, is, you know, I've been having a long weekend has been awesome, like gaining just a little bit longer of a breather um, between work weeks was great. It enabled me to, to ride um, almost 40 miles on my bike this weekend, which was really fun um, and definitely better for my, my quarantine 15. Um, so, yeah, what about you, Nathan? Uh, I mean, my highlight was that interview, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, uh, b- being able to have that, that conversation, uh, with, uh, Senator Ojeda. Um, and also, uh, the fact that my anniversary is coming up. Oh, um, congratulations. Yeah. So, uh, Jess and I have been married for, uh, two years wow. and, uh, we've been together for five years at this point. So, uh, so that's really exciting. And we're going to be uh, and this will probably be my highlight next week because we're gonna we're gonna go to the river and uh, have a nice little uh, nice little vacation. That's awesome, dude. That sounds really great. Yep. And thank you so much for listening to the Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. <laughs>